Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew and currently we're working through what's uh, called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus's famous uh, teaching section. If you have your Bible with you, open up to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today, verse 33. And so far we've seen Jesus raise the bar on his ethical and moral uh, standards for his followers. And so far, we've seen that everything he said and how he's reinterpreted some things have just sent shockwaves to their culture and, in fact, our culture as well, because Jesus said he had come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so he recast this vision of of the scriptures and himself like all wrapped up into one and explains out what this means to live as a Jesus follower, what this means ethically and morally. And remember the big idea behind any of Jesus's teachings is found in love God, love yourself and love other people. I mean, that that is his vision. That's what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. And that's what it all needs to point back to. And today he gets pretty specific and he applies his kingdom vision to the area of honesty, integrity, and keeping our word. Let's jump right in. Matthew 5, verse 33, Jesus says this. You have heard also that our ancestors were told. Remember, he says this every time. You've heard it said. You've heard back then. So you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. And so one thing that's very common throughout the scripture is the idea of being honest, being truth-telling, keeping your word. And we all were probably taught this growing up as well. Don't lie, right? Tell the truth. But here's one specific instance Jesus is talking about. There's a lot in the Old Testament, but here's one specific command about vow keeping. It's found in Deuteronomy 23, 21. It says, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, be prompt in fulfilling whatever you promised him. For the Lord your God demands that you promptly fulfill all your vows or you will be guilty of sin. However, it is not a sin to refrain from making a vow. Now, you don't have to do it. You never had to do it. It's not a sin not to. But once you voluntarily made a vow, be careful to fill your promise to the Lord your God. And so a vow is something you promise to the Lord about a thing. For instance, you can vow not to drink or not to eat certain things. Kind of like when you were younger and you were a teenager and you didn't want to get in trouble and you said, God, I promise I will go to church every Sunday and even Wednesday nights if I don't get caught, if I'm not found out. Right, that is a vow to the Lord. And since we've all broken that one, this is for us. Now, a oath, an oath is something you do with another person. It's an interaction with someone else. So it's I promise to do this, you promise to do this. So a vow is to the Lord, an oath is to each other. 
And in Matthew 5, what we are studying, we see some translations use the word vow, some use the, tra- um, some use the word oath, but what we have to understand is they're used interchangeably. There's a bigger idea because what you can easily do, and I've seen some scholars do, and I started doing it, is I started figuring out how to get out of everything Jesus is about to teach. Right? I'm like, ah, that's a vow. I won't do that. But my oaths, you know, I'm good there. Right? I start parsing words. I start doing exactly what he's about to condemn. So just understand, it's about promise keeping. It's about vows. It's about oaths. It's about keeping your words. And so Jesus, I mean, so what he says, you've heard that it says, right, that you must keep your vows. You must keep your oaths. You must be a truth teller. You're not required to make an oath. You're not required to make a vow. But if you make it, then you must keep it. Verse 34, but I say, do not make any vows. Do not make any oaths. It it literally reads, do not swear at all. And we're not talking about cussing. That's not what he's talking about. He's just like, I swear by, or I'm going to. Like, do not make any oaths. Do not make any vows. And once again, we're assuming Jesus isn't being quite literal, meaning that you can't, that, that he's not saying, we don't believe Jesus is saying, you can't take vows at a marriage, or you can't swear an oath when, when you go to court, or that you can't take a military oath. Although some people believe that's what he's saying, I think that's taken his idea a bit too far because that doesn't seem to be his point. He grabs our attention, but said, hey, hey, just like, don't make any. And he says, why? He says, but I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And I say, um, and do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, for you cannot turn one hair white or black. And so it's kind of foreign to us what's really going on here and why in the world would they swear by those things. But luckily for us, this isn't the only passage of scripture where Jesus deals with this. In Matthew 23, where Jesus is condemning the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, he brings this back up to give us a bit more context of what's happening. He says this to Matthew 23. He says, blind guides, what sorrow awaits you? How would you like to hear that from Jesus, right? What sorrow awaits you? For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it's binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is more important, the gold in the temple or what makes the gold sacred? So so here's what's going on. Evidently, they are lawyering their oaths. They're lawyering them. You know why? Because they're lawyers. That's what they are. This is the law. They're doing plays on words. And this makes perfect sense. And what he's doing, he's condemning the practice that is all too common today. They were being technical. They're deceiving others by what is said versus what is meant. They're looking for loopholes. They're saying, my fingers were crossed. You get the point. They're not staying true to the word and pointing to like, well... I didn't say this exactly. If it doesn't work for your teenagers, it shouldn't work for us when it comes to the things of the Lord and with our honesty and integrity. A modern example would be that whole I do section in your wedding. You're vowing to, to excuse me, you're, you're, you're vowing to the Lord to keep your vows to each other. That's why you say I do. You're committing to the Lord that you're going to keep your vows. That's what's going on. And what would happen is it, it'd be the equivalent of, I don't know, maybe end up in divorce court or whatever happens. Say, judge, listen. I know I said I do, 
but my fingers were crossed the whole time so it doesn't count. Like, how would that work? That, that's what they're doing with the things of the Lord. You see, they're not allowed to swear in the name of God, like make it to him, his name is holy, so they would make other objects, pick other objects to make their point. And so people do the same thing today to validate their truth. They look, I, they, look they say, I swear to, right? Or they say, I swear on my mama's grave. I, I don't know what that means. I've thought about that all week. I have no idea what that means. Or they say, I swear on someone's life. Like we invoke something greater, we invoke something larger to, to be like, hey, I'm telling the truth. If not, like I'm swearing by this thing. And so they would do this with the things of the temple, with the things of the God, because they couldn't point to him. And so then they're arguing over semantics about the nature of their oath. So they don't keep it. And so the rationale is they're like, hey, I know I swore by the temple, but nobody owns the temple. You can't put a lien on the temple. So it's not a big deal. Like it's really meaningless. But gold, well, gold is more valuable than the temple, even though God's presence is in the temple. Gold's more valuable because I own gold. And you can come and collect that. So, so gold's actually a higher standard. And they did it with other things. Verse 18. He says, and you say to swear by the altar is not binding, but to swear by the gifts on the altar is binding. How blind? For which is more important, the gift on the altar, the altar that makes the gift sacred. So the same idea, they're using trickle on words to get out of things they're supposed to keep. They're making oaths that sound big, that sound binding. They're trying to be holy in everything they're doing, but then they're going back on it and playing the semantic games. And Jesus brings this together for them. You got to love what he says next because he calls them out. He calls us out and he says, listen, we're not playing this game. God's not deceived by what's going on in your heart. You may win that argument at court. You, you may win that argument with your friend, but God actually knows the deception within you and what you're really trying to do. And he says, if you don't think it's binding, then you don't know who God is. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, when you swear by the altar, you're swearing by it and everything on it. And when you swear by the temple, you are swearing by it and by God who lives in it. And when you swear by heaven, you are swearing by the throne of God and by God who sits on the throne. He's saying, listen, anything you swear by is God's anyways. Those games don't work. You, the lack of integrity you're showing, other people may not pick up, but God sees it. And this is, of course, the same thing that we're seeing in chapter five. This is what Jesus is talking about. You're, you're trying to make your oaths binding by swearing on big things, but then you're saying those big things are actually not that important. So going back he says, but I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, because you can't turn one hair white or black. When you make an oath, when you make a vow, and you swear by all this stuff, then you try to get out of it. The truth is you're being dishonest, and it's all God's anyways because they weren't even required to make them. So it's pure deception, pure dishonesty. And Jesus's point for this whole thing perhaps isn't the most groundbreaking, but he believes it's important for us to talk about, so we might as well talk about it. His point is very simple, he says this, verse 38. He says, just say a simple yes I will, or no I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil 
one. And so for a Jesus follower, all we should have to say is yes and no. Our integrity, our truthfulness, our honesty should be so apparent. We shouldn't have this deception in our heart that we're really trying to avoid. We're really trying to get away. We're really trying to press our will. He says, enough with those games, enough with those loopholes. That's not for a Jesus follower. Your yes should be simply yes. Your no should be no, which means no loopholes, no crossing our fingers, no getting technical in a conversation for a Jesus follower. Just keep your commitments. Be honest, be dependable, be trustworthy. Our character should be so solid that all people have to hear from us is yes and no. Or if we say this one thing, people are like, oh, okay, well, I mean, I, I got, they said it, so it must be true. Like people should be able to trust the Jesus follower. And here's why this is so important. Look at what Jesus says in John 16, 14. It says, Jesus told them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And this is, if you didn't know, an outrageous, over-the-top claim by Jesus. He is claiming to be the embodiment of truth. Meaning truth is not just this abstract thing. It's not something we talk about. It's not something we try to avoid. It's not something we try to get around. Truth is the person of Jesus Christ. So he is the embodiment. He is literal truth. Which means anything that's not true can't be from him. It is evil because it's not from him. And so Jesus claims to be literal truth. He claims to speak the truth. His word is the truth. Which means everything he says points back to truth, his word, his person, which means as Christians then, if we aren't representing his truth, if we are being honest, dependable, have integrity, if people can't see that in our, in our lives, if we aren't reflecting him in that way, why in the world would they believe anything we say about him? Why would they believe anything we say about his word? Our character represents the truthfulness as believers. It's a witness to who Jesus is. This is an important topic because as you know and I know, unfortunately, Christians, the church, isn't known for being truthful. We're known for being hypocrites, for cover-ups, from hiding. And that's not from the Lord. And that's not who we should be. Because Jesus embodied truth. He commands us to embody truth. And, and John tells us something very interesting about Jesus and his truth. Look what he says, John 1.14. says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. It's, it's not that Jesus is half grace and half truth. But he is the embodiment full of grace and full of truth. And these ideas are not independent from each other. They are found in the person and the works of Jesus Christ. It isn't a balance to keep. Like, well, I got to be truthful. I got to be gracious. This isn't a balance. This is the tension to manage for the life of a believer, being full of and displaying both grace and truth. You see, our God our God is faithful when we are faithless. 
our God keeps his promises even when we break ours, even when we are at our complete worst, his faithfulness will carry through. We are saved by his work, not by ours. We are saved by his faithfulness, not by ours. He is the promise-keeping God, and that's what grace and truth looks like, that even when someone else breaks theirs, even when they don't hold to their part of the deal, we still keep ours. That's our God. And so how do we work this out? How do me and you apply this in our daily lives? Some of you like, I got it. That's great, but I want to go over a couple applications for us to live out this truth and grace. Number one, First, you, me, we, we have to be honest with ourselves. Not, excuse me, we have to be honest with God. This is where repentance comes in. We need to be vulnerable. We need to be honest with our sin and our excuses and where we fail and just flat out confess it before him. Because here's the deal. If you're not honest with a God who already knows absolutely everything you've done, he already knows your motives. He already knows your hearts. You may lie to yourself, but he already knows. And if you're not honest with him, how can you be honest with anybody else? You see, pride stops this. Pride gives us excuses. It gives us rationale. It puts the blame on others or something else rather than just going to God and admitting, hey, I failed. I sinned. Here's how I did that. And repentance, and I hope you practice this. You know, when I grew up in the faith, I thought repentance was that one-time thing you did to be saved. And then after I did that one-time thing, I was good. But then you find out that repentance is a daily thing, perhaps an hourly thing, where you're constantly going to God and reminding, Lord, I failed. And not to beat you up, but to remind you of the goodness and the gracious of God who's going to see you through, who's going to be faithful. But we have to admit and be the type of person who first admits to God that we are wrong, that we have sinned, and that we need his grace. And once we understand our sinfulness and our brokenness, then we can, be, and we, then we can start being honest about our need for his grace in our lives. Then we can start embodying that grace. Then we can start living it out. And then we have a shot, you and me, we have a shot to start seeing people how Jesus sees people rather than seeing them on our arrogant soapboxes. Y'all ever been on one of those? Start looking down on everybody else like they don't, like you have no problems and they just are all messed up. Being honest with God reminds you that, you know what? I'm broken. I need grace just like everybody else. And so when you sin, you absolutely will. You then repent. And my suggestion is, I've, I've told you this before, is that you verbally, don't just say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Say it. Say exactly what that gross, disgusting thing is that you just did. Say it because it's bitter when it comes out of your mouth. It's shameful. And I think all of that, there's a point to that, that it's like this bitter, gross taste that comes out of our mouth, owning that we, we thought that way or we did that thing or we said that. You're saying, God, forgive me. There's something about that that is so 
powerful because when you do that, you find his strength. Look at what Paul tells us in dealing with his struggles. He says, but when Paul would go to God and confess his weaknesses and deal with whatever he had going on, we don't know what this problem was, but he would confess it and talk to God about it. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And so all of us have a weakness, whether it's a physical ailment, whether it's a mental ailment, whether it's an emotional ailment, whether it's this thing that's grabbing a hold of you and you just can't let go of it. We confess that we give it to God and it's through that we find his power. We let go of pride and we find the strength of Christ in that. And so it's through our weaknesses, our honesty, our vulnerability before God, we find power and strength. So if we're going to be people of integrity, if we're going to be people that are honest and trustworthy, first we've got to be honest with God. It starts there. And then second, you must be honest with yourself. And this is not easy. Being honest with yourself, because me and myself, we agree all the time. Like about anything that I think is a great idea, I find myself agreeing with me. It's great. We just have this conversation. We're like, no problems at all. Let's just go. But we got to be a little bit more honest. This is the monitoring the heart, checking our motives, being real with what's actually going on. Like, why are you really mad? Why are you really frustrated? And this is not an easy thing to do, being honest with ourselves, being honest with our part. For instance, the first step in marriage counseling or, or helping people come back together, that reconciliation is let's say one spouse is 80% at fault. Let's just say 90% at fault. The other person is 20 or 10% at fault. If both would admit that they have fault, like if both would own their peace, you are on the way to reconciliation. But how often do we just blame the other person? We have to admit our stuff. Our fault. And so what does it mean being honest with yourself? Well, first, this is really fun. Admit you are wrong. Like to yourself first. Because you find yourself agreeing with yourself, don't you? Just, yeah, okay, yeah, agree with me. Admit you're wrong. Like, you know what, I'm wrong. I know this is challenging. But most of the time when you are wrong, check this out, everybody else knows anyways. It's the elephant in the room. Everybody else already knows you're wrong. You just haven't owned it. And sometimes we look like fools because we haven't owned it. So just admit you were wrong. You made a mistake. We've done something we shouldn't have. I mean, we have to own that internally. Because if we can't admit to ourselves that we're wrong, if we don't break down the pride that grows within If we don't just own that, you know what? I shouldn't have done that or my motives are wrong on that. I need to let this go. If we can't admit that inside, then we are surely not gonna tell other people. We're surely not gonna be people of reconciliation and redemption, restoring relationships, fixing those broken things. We're gonna lose far more credibility by being stubborn. And and folks, I hear that more if not, well, I'm just stubborn. Or we hear people described as stubborn. Listen, that's not a good thing. It's a t- that's what Satan was, stubborn, prideful. Stubborn is, the only, is just another way of saying you're prideful. Like it's a t- terrible thing. It's the opposite of receiving God's grace and knowing we're broken and we do make mistakes and we do need his help. Stubbornness tells us that we got it all figured out. It's not a compliment. I don't know if you knew that. It's turned into one nowadays. It's not. It's not a good thing. 
So admit when you're wrong. And then second, this is going to be challenging. Admit you don't know everything. We laugh, but sometimes we just need to admit I don't know everything. There's some things I don't know. There's some areas I'm wrong. And there's nothing more freeing than letting the go idea that one person can know everything. Just admit it. Everybody else, everybody else around you already knows you don't know everything. They already know. They tell you all the time. You just don't believe it. So admit it like, hey, I don't know. And if you're honest with yourself and that you don't have all the answers, you will be so much free to enjoy life. You can have an opinion. We all have one. But just admit to yourself you don't know everything. So you must be honest with God. You must be honest with yourself because here's the deal. I do not believe there's a chance you're going to live with integrity and honesty if you can't do those first two things. If you can't be honest with God, if you can't be honest with yourself, there's no way you're going to live out integrity and honesty. You haven't worked the muscles to say, I'm sorry. You haven't worked the muscles to publicly say, I was wrong. You haven't worked those and trained those muscles with God first, with yourself second, because it's only then when you can go in front of a group of people or you can go to someone and say, listen, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I, I own it. I made the mistake. Start with God and work those muscles out. That confession, that repentance. And then lastly, when we do work through that, then we live with this tension of truth and grace. And that's not easy. I don't have the answers for it. But we must be the embodiment like our Savior of both grace and truth. This means that when others don't keep their promises, we still keep ours. This means we're going to be vulnerable. That means we're going to be we're going to have our character questioned. It's going to be challenged. But we strive to let our yes be yes, our no's be no's. It should be so pure that people can't challenge it. Although they will. Remember, we learned at the beginning of this section that Jesus said people are going to say false things about you. They're going to lie about you because of him. But our character be in such a way that people are like, ah, I don't know about that. They seem to be pretty honest. But keeping this idea of grace and truth in your mind will radically help you with interactions with other people, especially people that don't agree with you, especially with people who think differently than you. Understanding grace needs to come out in your communications because you are in desperate need of God's grace, because you were broken and you're a sinner and you need Jesus just like they need Jesus. Then you can start being a bit more gracious with others, still living out truth, still speaking truth to people but with grace. Understanding that trustworthy means that people have to see us, admit when we're wrong, admit when we don't know, and that will build far more credibility for our character just by working through that. Because we as Christians, you and me, we're called to be people of integrity. And what would this look like in your life? Uh, imagine if you didn't have to carry the weight of that sin around any longer. Those secrets, those things you don't think people know, that stuff you do that you don't think anybody else knows that's weighing you down, that's just pressing you down, that's sitting on top of you. What, what would it look like if you finally gave that to Christ? If you started repenting and owning up and started talking to him about that, started confessing to him to that, start asking for his power and his grace. What would it look like if you, were in, if you talked about that stuff? that internal stuff. Instead of hiding from it because it's crushing you, it's killing you and you need to give it to God. 
Imagine if you and your spouse finally had that hard conversation about how you feel. Imagine if you were really honest with her, you were honest with him, and you really talked about the things going on in your life. And what if instead of being embarrassed and ashamed or building up the walls of protection with your spouse, nonetheless, you were honest, you were vulnerable. And, and what would it look like for your spouse to actually, what would it look like for your spouse to actually be able to tell you the truth and you be able to handle it? Because it's one thing for someone to tell you the truth. It's another thing, your responsibility of what are you going to do with that truth then? Do you have enough integrity and honesty for people to speak truth in your life? Can you handle it? Imagine the world or imagine what we could make, the difference we could make as Christians if we stopped playing the political loophole game. And if we were just truthful and honest about what's going on. What if we stopped playing word games and our yeses were yes and our noes were noes? We just had conversation and we could build trustworthy, be dependable people. I mean, imagine if Christians were known for believing some weird things, but the most dependable and honest people you've ever met. Imagine if that's just what people thought. Hey, they're kind of weird, but I'd hire one. You can trust them. They always show up. No one can be that sick. Y'all ever worked with people you cannot imagine how they're always that sick? Must just be what I've worked, maybe not where you've worked, or maybe you're that person, forgive me. But when we are truthful, we are showing others the truthfulness and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He didn't take back his promises because we failed. He stayed true, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And the only way that you and me can live this out in, the crazy world, in this crazy world is by trusting in him. The only way we can live out being vulnerable, honest, and trustworthy people of integrity is if we have trusted Jesus. We have to trust Jesus' faithfulness. We have to trust him to protect us rather than us trying to protect ourselves. We have to allow him to, to go forward and restore these relationships. Instead of pretending to be people we're not, we can have integrity because we trust that we are children of God and we don't have to pretend in this world. We don't have to be fake. We don't, we don't have to live that way. By trusting in Jesus, he gives us strength to live this out. You see, because he is the only one to pull this off. He is the only one to pull off having full integrity, being completely trustworthy, never lying. He, he did what we could never do and then took it a step further by going to the cross to pay for all the lies we've done, all the dishonesty we've done. Jesus went a step further and died on the cross for us to restore our relationship with him and the Father. So we trust him. We, we trust Jesus to meet our deepest needs and we trust in his works for our salvation. We trust that he will do his good work even when we're faithless, even when we're unfaithful. And we trust him to work out in us this honesty and dependability of our character. So the question is, have you trusted in Jesus? Have you, have you asked him for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you come to the place where you realized you're broken and you've tried your best to do all the good stuff and you failed just like everyone else failed? Have you come to the point realizing that you can't be that perfect person, but you need a perfect savior? Because that is found in the person and the works of Jesus Christ. He invites you to come to him. He says, come on. I've already done the work. Come rest in me. 
Come find grace because it's in that you will find life. It's in that you will find the ability to change. You will see transformation, not because of what you've done, but because of what he can do through you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today expressing to you our deep need for your strength and love in our lives. Heavenly Father, we are all guilty of being dishonest, of not being gracious when, when we are truthful, or of not being truthful because we're scared. Father, thank you for providing the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus. We rely upon your grace to get this right. We know we are broken people who are trying to work this out, and we are in desperate need of your help. Father, help us be people of integrity. Help us be people of love, grace, and truth. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for keeping your promises even when we fail. We come to you deeply indebted of your grace deeply indebted of the works of Jesus Christ, knowing that even in the darkest, most sinful moments of our lives, you are faithful and you are just and you will forgive us. You have forgiven us. We thank you, Lord. So give us the strength and power to be free from that sin and to live for you to be people of integrity and honesty and trustworthiness. So Lord, help us live in such a way that when people hear us say yes, they can count on it. When people hear us say no, they can trust it. Pointing them back to you. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray.